Hello, welcome to Advancing Agriculture, legal insight for the ag finance industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. In this episode, your hosts will discuss distressed debts, including how to identify distress, what actions lenders can attempt to resolve distress, and important related topics. This is Elizabeth Benefield, and I've joined Stephanie here at Hush Blackwell after 10 years serving as in-house counsel with Farm Credit Institutions, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. In this episode, we're excited to discuss challenges and what some of the best successes are regarding distressed debt. Thank you, Elizabeth. This is Stephanie, and I'm working here today with Elizabeth to bring you this podcast talking about the legal insights for the ag finance industry. I'm a partner here at Hush Blackwell, and I've practiced law for going on 22 years. Most of my practice has been uh, for firms, and I've represented mostly lending and financial institutions during that time. I do serve as outside general counsel for a good number of them, and I've even been in-house for a couple of years. So throughout that time, I've had a lot of opportunities like Elizabeth have, uh, has to see you know, how, how loans renew over the time, how the cycles of distress occur, how loans tend to cycle every three to five years and the changes in the market. So with all of those things and knowing that this time of the year sometimes can bring on those new opportunities for reviewing loans, deciding whether or not to renew them, and especially in our current economic climate, what distress can look like. So in this first podcast, we thought we would discuss and focus on distress debts as an introduction for this section in this podcast, and then kind of explore some of the challenges and the things that we've seen over the years in our experience and how to give some practical tips and advice for lenders in this area. So with that being said, I guess we can kind of start out where I normally start out. When someone gives me a call, we always want to talk about first, what is a distressed debt? So people will often call me and say, Stephanie, I've got this loan in default. You know, what do we need to do? And so I always kind of want to back up a little bit and say, well, let's start out first. What is a distressed loan? Is the loan distressed? Is it just in default? So I, I don't know, Elizabeth, from your perspective, what do you consider or how do you define a distressed loan and how do you distinguish a distressed loan from like a deterioration or some other kind of monetary or other default under the loan? That's a great question, Stephanie. I mean, when we think of distressed debt, mainly considering a borrower who is experiencing financial difficulties, um, you know, where there's known deterioration in the financial condition of the borrower. Um, some of those indicators, I think, can include, you know, whether the borrower is currently in payment default on any of its debt, whether that's with the lender or other creditors, whether it's probable that the borrower is going to be in payment default on any of the debts in the foreseeable future. Um, you know, again, we're going to look at whether the borrower is in default on any of the loan's monetary covenants or other covenants. So, you know, if you think about taxes being paid, um, the insurance being paid, whether there's repairs on the property not being done. We're also, I think, looking for adverse changes in the borrower's employment or cash flow, any of their assets or liabilities. I'm certainly looking to see if there's any default that is expected. For example, you know, seasonal changes, whether there's distress in the industry that we're aware of, that there um, have been weather events or weather conditions that are going to affect that customer in a specific way. Um, and certainly when we talk about farm credit, you know, we can look at the strict regulatory definition there. And when we speak about that, we're really looking at distressed loan as something that is a loan where the borrower does not have the financial capacity to pay according to the terms of the loan. And where the borrower has exhibited either one or more of the following characteristics, and that's going to be borrowers demonstrating adverse financial and repayment trends, the loan is delinquent or past due under the terms of the loan contract, or one or both of those factors together with inadequate collateralization where the lender is presented with a high probability of loss. 
And when I think of kind of distinguishing that idea of distress from the monetary default, you think of monetary default as being characterized by a failure to pay the obligations when they're due under the contract or the note. So easy example, the payment is late. And as far as whether or not that's really an indication of distress depends on the repayment ability. So for example, we'd want to look at, is that monetary default strategic? You know, perhaps the borrower has the funds to make the payment, but they've chosen not to do so. And, you know, perhaps they're using the grace period in the loan contract for cash flow purposes. It might be that simple. It might be that they've decided to default in order to try and gain advantages. You know, maybe they think during the default process, if they, for example, think that they have a legal argument for non-payment, they want to try and exercise that. Or is that monetary default truly a sign of distress? Um, you know, we're always also looking at some of these non-monetary requirements to the create events of default. We think about things like covenant violations or ratio violations, um, a failure to provide documentation that's required by the loan contract, such as tax returns or balance sheets. For the lender, it's often difficult to distinguish monetary default, especially where the borrower likely has the financial capacity to make payments but hasn't, in a situation where the borrower is unable to make the payments due to distress. And especially where some of those defaults are combined, so if the borrowers failed to produce financial documentation that the lender could have otherwise used to enable them to conclusively make that determination. You know, you've, you've said a lot of good things there, and I want to kind of focus on a couple of those. So you mentioned that you cited kind of the Farm Credit Administration regulatory definition of a distress loan. In my experience, while you are kind of looking at the one from the Farm Credit Regs, I've also seen that same or similar definition really cover throughout the various kinds of lending institution categories, whether it's your commercial banks, your community state banks, your credit unions, what have you. Has that been your sort of experience as well? Yes, I think generally that we're looking at the same or similar definitions or characteristics for determining distress in the debt. It, that's kind of been my experience too, and I think that it's really important for whoever you know might find this helpful really focus on your definition that applies to you. You're going to probably have a regulatory definition that's going to you know, guide your distress, but then there also might be some internal guidance that you need to make sure not only satisfies that regulatory definition, but also gives you that sound you know, credit basis to make good decisions. So using the definition that Elizabeth used, whenever people call me, I even though we haven't memorized this kind of a definition, I always back up and go through what we call the elements so if someone calls me on the phone and says, you know, let's start getting those notices out the door. I said, well, let's stop and find out first, do we have a distressed debt? And Elizabeth, you kind of mentioned a lot of those really good indicators, whether it be, you know, they've, they've missed a payment, whether strategic or otherwise, they've missed a payment, they've not paid their, meaning like an installment payment, they haven't paid their taxes, maybe they've deferred on their insurance, um, maybe you're aware of maybe some other kind of covenant violations like a debt to capital ratio kind of violation or something like that, or income over expense is sort of out of whack. When you see these opportunities for me, and tell me if you disagree, but when you see these opportunities, to me, I call those stop sign moments, including bankruptcy filings or lawsuit filings. Those are stop sign moments. None, no one sign alone typically is going to tell you if a loan is distressed. But whenever you do have those sort of changes, you know, um, aberrations in their payment history, defaults you haven't seen before, violations of covenants, when you have those changes, it's a moment that the lender, in my experience, should stop and say, what's going on? Why are we doing this? And kind of peel back the layer of the onion. And then importantly, as we'll probably, I assume we'll talk about document, 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 document that they stopped at that stop sign moment, analyze that issue, 
And did it indicate distress? Did it not indicate distress? Is that is that sort of your feeling too? It's just kind of a moment to look at it or do you, you see it differently? No, I completely agree, Stephanie. I think it's a great moment to kind of pause, like you're saying, and analyze what's going on. And I think it's very important, especially because, you know, we have situations where we've created challenges like that and delayed identification and handling distress, you know, that that creates additional issues. And so, Stephanie, I'd be really curious to see, like, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced relative to that kind of delay, um, you know, when maybe you don't see the stop sign and pause appropriately to, to do that analysis? There's a lot of unpacking there. As you and I both know, being general counsel or people who advised, you know, on the front lines of these kinds of issues, I get those phone calls. And a lot of times people, you know, want to predetermine we're going to send out a notice of default or do something else. And I'll say, first of all, let's back up and look at the the debt and what's going on like we were just talking about. But let's say that they do have a distress. Sometimes I will see that people will do a couple of things that I think really could delay the timing and identification. One of those things is they let the borrower tell them whether they're in distress or not. And I, I think that that's just a miss. It really has to be the lender's determination, the bank's determination on whether that credit or that loan is distressed. I really think that's a critical because one, why the lender's the one who's regulatorily responsible for guiding that credit and making sure it stays in line and truly making sure that they've satisfied the guidance that they are governed by. But even beyond the regulatory requirement, which is important and shouldn't be missed because it's there for a reason, if you wait too long or let excuses prevail on you know, identifying and tagging that distress, then really, in my opinion, you could be operating at a disservice to that borrower and the debt and to the lending institution in a couple of different ways. So first of all, when, when in my experience, you look at that 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 debt that's maybe having a signal change, like uh, like we were talking about, a delayed payment, a missed payment, um, you know, deferred maintenance, um, insurance covenants are missed, whatever it happens to be, taxes aren't paid. When you look at those, and let's say you've gone through the elements, one, does the borrower lack the financial capacity to pay the loan according to its terms? I think that's a key phrase right there. Have they done that? If the answer is yes, now we're going to go on and look at the next aspect are they either demonstrating adverse financial and repayment trends with you or any other creditor and or are they delinquent, which means a monetary default under the loan, which sometimes can mean not just the installment, but like, for example, failing to failing to timely pay your real estate taxes. So when you look at that, if you see, okay, yes, they are lacking the financial capacity to pay the loan according to its current terms, not the terms you could modify to get them in compliance. That's different. It has to be according to the current contract before you. And then looking at one or more of those other elements, once you've said, okay, they are distressed, you need to start taking action. Sometimes when you talk about those delays, Elizabeth, I will see people who will kind of apply these um, formulaic approaches. And I just think that that maybe creates a miss sometimes or delay, like I need to wait until they're in default for 30 days, or I need to wait until they're in default in, two, in 60 days, or they tell me the payment's coming, we're just waiting on a vendor issue, or whatever it happens to be. Those kind of formulaic approaches, I think, can create an opportunity for delay. Why does 60 days or the 30 days that I'm talking about matter? Well, some people don't want to rush the distress identification. And I think that that's kind of a fear that shouldn't exist, in my opinion, because nothing bad happens when it's identified as distress too early. Why? Because if you're a lender who wants to use that opportunity for distress as an opportunity to make sure the loan stays within what I call the swim lanes of performance, making sure it doesn't get too late in that clock, meaning when I talk about the clock, 
a lender should keep in mind a couple of different clocks at all times. One, you know, the non-accrual clock. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, but but not to get too far ahead of myself. But the non-accrual clock is this 90-day clock that, you know, has some elements that get discussed from time to time. So if you can avoid getting too close to that 90-day mark where you have to start really analyzing if you have a non-accrual debt, the better. And also forgetting the non-accrual for just a moment, although it's important, the more longer you let a debt sit in distress before you identify, you're delaying a solution. You're letting the hole potentially, potentially get bigger. And the bigger the hole, the harder it is to climb out. All lenders should want a borrower to perform. And if there's any borrowers listening, I always like to plug to say this, no lender wants your collateral back. <laughs> they want payment under the loan. <laughs> and so no lender should really be rushing to liquidate. We really want performance under the loan. So if the goal is performance under a loan, the sooner you can identify a distress, even if it's like an advanced identification, which to me means uh, identifying a distress even before a monetary delinquency or a delinquency occurs. So you have the lack of financial capacity to pay the loan according to its terms. And maybe they're demonstrating adverse financial repayment trends, such as um, they we know that they currently don't have cash flow to support that next installment. So let's say their installment's due January 1, 2021. It's December 4, uh, 2020. And then we already know that they don't have money in the bank and we don't see based upon their projections and their operation cash flow that they're going to have it. Or there's been an event where we know the typical payment will not be received because an event outside the borrower's control. Distress can happen totally outside the borrower's control and the lender needs to step in and then do what? Okay, what can we do in terms of a plan or an application or an action that can get this loan back into a performing status or prevent it from going into a non-performing status. So to me, that really is the goals. If you, The quicker you can identify, even advance of a delinquency, a monetary default, that a loan is in distress, the better for the borrower, the better for the, uh, the lending institution. And definitely, it's, it's making sure you're always on top of those five C's of credit, which I think sometimes people forget. You know, again, it's the lender's determination. We want to make sure we're collaborating with the borrower, getting with them sooner, getting with them sooner uh, rather than later, making sure we say, look, we see there's some changes that are adverse in your performance or in your operations or in your um, payment cycle. We want to talk to you about that and see what we can do, maybe see what learn, see what's going on. What can you tell us about where you are? Are there aberrations? And I think a lot of times people delay having that conversation because it's uncomfortable. But there's two things I want to knock out the door. One is if a borrower is distressed and kind of knows what, the, what, what they're doing in their operation, they know they're in distress. Even if they don't really know what that definition means, they know that there's a change. So really, you're not doing anything more than inviting a good conversation to help them stay within the swim lanes. And number two, even before you ever get to a distress, I always want to encourage people and place the plug at the time of closing or at the time of the start of a new relationship, encourage communications with the lender. We're not the enemy on the lending side. We want to stay open and collaborative. We want to be transparent. And the more that we know about your operation, the better we can help you, however appropriate, make sure that we're doing what we can permissibly within our underwriting guidelines and what have you and good practices to make sure that loan stays on the books in a cash performing way. So that's kind of a long way away of saying the sooner, the better. Uh, making sure we identify that distress, why, to make sure it stays a performing loan, and if you can, performing it from going non-accrual. So I guess, you know, when I talk about non-accrual, and I've sort of peeled back that envelope a little bit, 
under that non-accrual classification, you know, there has been some kind of recent guidance in some of the industries, lending industries, about how that's changed. So I don't know, Elizabeth, do you have any kind of current insight on maybe some changes in the non-accrual identification or just how to kind of properly classify a loan as non-accrual status and what that means? Sure. I mean, when we look at the strict definition, you know, uh, we're looking for a loan that's past due. Um, you know, that tends to lend some complications. I mean, past due you know, means contractually scheduled loan payments have not been received by the lender in full on or before the contractual due date and the payment remains due. The easy example of that, the loan payment due on the first of the month is past due on the second day of the month. As far as struggles often faced here, you know, we look at lender grace periods. So we talk about the period of time after the due date of the payment, but prior to the lender's imposition of the late penalty. And that can be as much as 15 days and sometimes even longer, depending on where you are and what kind of accounting systems you're using. So you're looking at this, you know, review of some of the FFIEC instructions for call reports. They don't actually require the inclusion of a loan on that call report if it's past due, but still within the lender's grace period. And I think that creates other challenges because there's some thought of, is it past due or not past due based on that use of the grace period? Um, you know, we can also kind of look a little bit at when the lender would report to the credit bureau if they are someone who reports to the credit bureau. And again, that sometimes doesn't happen until at least 30 or even 60 days late. General rule, I mean, assets should be placed in non-accrual status when the principal or interest is 90 days or more past due, or payment in full of the principal or interest is not expected. Um, the, you know, the other caveat there is, you know, unless that asset is well or adequately secured and in the process of collection. I think that 90 days past due and that initial distinction is really not subjective. So like I say, if we talk about payments due on the first, once we're 90 days past that point, then I think the loan has to be non-accrual. The biggest challenge I think is going to come from deal, defining the idea of well or adequately secured or in the process of collection. I think those two things become a little bit more subjective in how the lender is going to define that. Um, I think it's good to note also that there's no requirement that a loan be 90 days delinquent before it's placed in non-accrual. You know, once there's reasonable doubt that exists about the loan's collectability, the loan should be placed in non-accrual. Um, some of the key issues to kind of con consider with collectability of the loan are the concepts of well secured and in the process of collection. I think larger challenge based on some recent you know, regulatory changes is the idea of returning the loan to accrual status and, and how we can define the sustained performance of the loan. Um, for example, you know, a borrower has resumed their repayment, but they are at this point, as they always have been, making those payments inside the grace period rather than on or before the contractual due date. And asking ourselves the question, you know, is this habitual behavior of the borrower, they've just relied on that grace period for years, or is it really an income or cash flow disruption? And can we cure that by adjusting the payment date? So for example, do we have the ability to move the payment from the first to the 15th? Um, especially where maybe you have a borrower who has income they're relying on from a spouse or a partner who gets paid on the first day of the month. And so they're gonna need that. So can we move that or can we just reset that? So could we do a loan modification just to move the payment back a month to give them a chance to kind of catch up in between that spot. So now they can make those payments on the first. I think all those things kind of, you know, give the lender some pause on how they can deal with those. And so Stephanie, I mean, do you have thoughts, I guess, around the non-accrual status or how we can get 
these borrowers back out of non-accrual? I, I do. And, and if I could ask you a quick follow-up too, because I think what you just said a second ago, I think was really important. When you talk about that non-accrual definition, which is fairly universal, and there's a few reasons why that I'm, I know we'll discuss, but um, you know, when you talk about that non-accrual definition, you talk about well or adequately secured. So let's say you have the loan that's 90 days past due and it has the other telltale signs of non-accrual debt. Why does that well or adequately secured matter in terms of a non-accrual identification? Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Sure. So when we look at well or adequately secured, I mean, we're really kind of looking for collateral that either has you know, net realizable value that's sufficient to repay the loan's principal or there's a guarantee of financial um, responsible parties. So someone we can collect on in, in the, you know, outside of where the borrower is. And I think that's important because when we think of a non-accrual loan, we're thinking of something where we're, there's no collectability or there's an, a reasonable decision has been made that the loan is not collectible. And when we look at well-secured or adequately secured, then, you know, if we have the ability to either through the borrower, you know, like kind of with a, you know, an agreement that collateral will be sold or liquidated or, you know, unfortunately, the lender has to foreclose and then resell, you know, the idea is that that loan will be collected at some point because that collateral can repay the loan or in the situation where we have the guarantor. So if we can collect from the guarantor, then it's, you know, the, the reasonable likelihood is that the loan will be paid in full at some point. It will be repaid in full. Okay. So I, I made you go back and pause on that. I really like that you added that in because from my perspective, I think that's one of the key issues. So we were talking about at the outset, sort of there's this relationship between an identification of a distressed debt and this non-accrual classification. To me, they're kind of mental cousins. And so when you look at a distressed debt, what is that first element we've been talking about? They lack the financial capacity to pay the loan according to its terms. And so just like you articulated, if if a borrower is well secured or if a loan is well secured, then at least the ability to collect is there. Now, as a lender, you're going to want to make sure that you really make sure you have good valuations on that collateral, whether it's real estate or personal property, for example, or you know some other intangible. Make sure you have good identification and, and valuation of that collateral in real time so that you can do what Elizabeth just mentioned. You can make sure you're adequately secured, that market changes haven't affected that. And if it has, and of course, you need to obviously factor that into your non-accrual determination. But there is a relationship to even beyond that well-secured concept and financial capacity. The other relationship between distressed loan identification and non-accrual um, debt classification really gets into some of those subjective elements as well. So when I mentioned earlier, it, you know, when people call me and they say, you know, this, I feel like this loan is in distress or in default, we need to go send out this notice. I always, even though we know these elements backwards and forwards, I say, let's walk through those elements again, and I'm going to revisit that conversation now for a couple of reasons. One is, um, especially if I've worked with a lender for a long time, we've kind of gotten this 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 way about us that let's go pull that credit narrative. You know, whatever your loan write-up is, what is the key document, document, document? You've had a stop sign moment, like Elizabeth, you were talking about a little bit ago. You've had that stop sign moment where there's been a payment miss, or there has been taxes that have been accruing and they're well past due. And now we've got a, you know, obviously a prior uh, priority in our lien status challenge. So you've got these moments, you've analyzed it. Let's say you determine it is distressed. So I always encourage people, and this is kind of a practice tip, but there's a good reason for it for many reasons. Well, there's many reasons I think for it. One is let's document those elements. Literally have this somewhere, kind of a section in your loan write-up or your credit narrative and write-up on your analysis that says, you know, um, this loan has been identified as a distressed loan because 
you know, borrower lacks the financial capacity to pay the loan according to its terms. You know, for example, you know, the borrower basically is under collateralized. The borrower has missed their payment. The borrower's cash flow has been impaired. Uh, they're experiencing negative equity or they, they've lost their, you know, 40% in equity. You know, whatever it happens to be, identify all of those reasons why you believe the borrower cannot pay their loan contract according to its terms. They don't have the financial capacity to pay the loan according to its terms. And then the second, you know, go to the second and third potential elements, which are, you know, it, uh, demonstrating adverse financial and repayment trends. And I say the word and, and I emphasize it every time. It's kind of annoying, Elizabeth, but I do that because I got in a very long series of debates once about with a, with a, with an officer about whether they were had both financial and repayment trends at first. And so we got to do it. But what does that mean? And we really led to a great conversation, maybe for another podcast, but it really was a good conversation. But when you do that, you're also going to say, okay, yes, they're demonstrating adverse financial and repayment trends. Why, what are some examples of that? And I'll, I'll encourage them in their write-ups to include those examples. Um, let's say you've noticed that their unsecured debt has increased uh, demonstrably. Their payables and the aging of those has dramatically changed. Like I mentioned, their equity has changed. Um, maybe their, uh, their, um, their timing of their payments. I always say, give me their payment history. And hopefully the lender has a really good program that will allow them to generate, okay, here's the installment date column and when it's due and and here's the, the actual payments received. And then I always like to look too, by the way, on who's making those payments. And so when you can kind of see those things, you're seeing, okay, are there, you know, changes in the frequency of payment, the source of payment, um, the, the method of payment, you know, whatever it happens to be, are there changes in those behaviors? And if so, that can help support that. Are there changes in debt? Has their balance sheet been impacted? If so, how? Dem you, know, you may not get all of them, but document the ones that you've identified. And then uh, last, you know, are they, in delin are they delinquent? And identify the missed installments or the payment, not just the installments, but also, as I mentioned earlier, let's say they failed to pay their taxes timely or they failed, you know, to pay their insurance premiums timely, whatever it happened to be. So I mentioned all these things, document, 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 Why? Put in that credit narrative for lots of reasons. One, it's a checklist to make sure you got it right. And let's say you, you analyzed it, but you got the wrong answers. Let's say you analyzed it and a regulator or an examiner or a reviewer for an internal review comes and looks at it later and goes, I see this, but you kind of miss these other couple of factors. At least get that partial credit. At least let them know you were thinking through it in real time. But let's say you got it right. More times than not, if you've thought through it, you probably are going to get it correct. At least that's been my experience with the lenders I work with. Once you have those documented reasons, people know that I work with, they just send me their credit narrative uh, when we're looking at whether or not the loan is distressed. And then we'll use that credit narrative basis and, and the backup for that will populate a notice of distress or an appropriate communication to send to the borrower, depending upon internal guidance and regulations. And then we also use that as that that phone call moment, because I always like to you know call borrowers when you're experiencing these things or noticing these changes, call them and say, hey, we're noticing some changes. This is kind of what we're seeing. Just to let you know, let's say you've made the determination of distress. We've identified this distress. Um, we're going to send you a notice. Please know this is not like your typical notice of default. Look at the reasons we've identified. And then if you want, apply to restructure that loan. Apply to see what you can do to modify those loan the loan terms from your perspective to get that into a performing status to address those bases for distress. So that credit narrative write-up, although you're not going to share that because that's typically confidential, it's going to populate the bases for the distress in your notice. It's going to serve as the transcript for your conversation. And it makes sure that everyone stays consistent all the way through because not everybody remembers all their oral conversations. 
So it really keeps you on track. And if you happen to get an application or request to restructure, and let's say you have to deny it, then at least you can go back to your reasons for identify, uh, identifying the distress in the first place and say, we've, you know, we've denied, we've received your application, we've denied uh, your request because let's say you failed to identify um, how you're going to return or how you're going to address the adverse financial and repayment trends. You failed to identify how you're going to resolve the delinquencies under the loan or how you're going to become financially capable over a certain period of time identified to uh, be able to pay the loan according to these modified terms. So it serves as a full transcript. But even to what I like it more importantly, more positively, is that if you have that checklist in your credit narrative that populates your notice, it also, when you get in, if you get in and when you get in that application uh, to restructure a request or restructure the loan, you can compare the application side by side with your checklist that you developed in your credit narrative, your bases for distress, and say, has the borrower identified all of the concerns we, we saw for distress identification? If not, you can immediately follow up with the borrower, assuming it makes sense under the circumstances and say, we've got your request, we've got your application, but you failed to address these couple of things. Can you update your application on how you would propose to get those things done? And let's say, of course, you have a borrower who just doesn't apply or doesn't make that request, Elizabeth, what do we do? You know, under many circumstances, a lender can propose, look, I've got your application and here's what I would counter with, or I didn't get an application, but here's what I think you could do. You know, please review this. And if you're willing to enter into this modification, you know, sign off and return. So the lender needs to have an active engagement. And where I found the highest level of success is where is is when a lender knows where they are in the credit at all times. Why? Because they know the borrower. They know the borrower. They know their operations. Especially in ag industry, you need to know your borrower. You need to know what it means to have their cycles, what the market changes are, are doing for them, what their vendors are doing for them, uh, where the where the valuations are, where the prices are. You need to know all of that stuff and how your particular borrower is being impacted. Why? So you can help make sure that their request for restructure makes sense in light of the historics and in light of the market or that your proposal makes sense back to them. But know where you are because a lender should be guiding that process and not just waiting for, for the restructure opportunities to come to them or to happen to them. And so kind of talking through that, Elizabeth, and looking at the restructure options, going back to one of your comments and requests a little bit ago, I think that for me, when we can get creative on these things, creative to make sure we look at all viable options for returning a loan to viability, which is the purpose of a restructure is to return that loan to viability. You can do that through lots of ways. Sometimes through a forbearance, not a perpetual forbearance. The forbearance has to make sense, but doing it through a forbearance, um, including maybe a partial uh, liquidation so that your income and expense ratios tend to get back in line or make more sense. I like to include measurable terms, like having those monetary terms that you can measure performance, giving them something to pay that makes sense, like whether it's some outstanding fees, whether it's keeping the interest current, um, whether it's, you know, uh, modifications to principal over a certain period of time and then modifying the payment terms elsewhere down the line when they can start to get their their operations back in cash flow mode so they can start paying you or reducing the debt through a partial liquidation. So now the debt size makes more sense and now we can amortize differently. All of these are things that you can consider but importantly, too, so practical tips that I found, and Elizabeth, I want to know if you have other ones. Whenever we document a restructure, whether it's a lender proposed or a borrower proposed restructure, I strongly encourage 
the lender groups to have recitals up front in, in up front in that forbearance or that liquidation plan or that excuse me that partial liquidation plan or that restructure plan that says you know, here's the debt amount, here's the amount you owe, here's the collateral values, here's the current accruing interest. Um, we've satisfied all our conditions precedent. We've given you all these notices. We've met on these occasions and had these conversations. Meaning I like to have that factual history that's relevant. I like to have it in the recitals to make sure we all agree we got here in these ways and here's what we did and here's what we agree to do next. That way down the road, we don't have all these fact issues that could become distracting uh, if for some reason um, we aren't able to you know, stay successful in that restructure opportunity. If it makes sense, I like them to go ahead and agree that if, if they breach or if they don't perform or if this thing doesn't get back in good performing status, then they'll agree to a judgment, whether that's, you know, not just giving you a judgment, but let's say you file a lawsuit, they'll agree that they owe the debt, they'll pay the debt, um, they'll agree to the judgment amount, they'll agree to the interest rate under that judgment. If I can get that up front, I think it makes sense. Why? Because it reduces the cost to the borrower, it reduces the cost to the lending institution, and hopefully that judgment opportunity is only included if the breaches are severe or things really aren't working out under the loan and you want to make it cost effective to have a wrap up to that relationship. And importantly, to go ahead and include those waivers and releases. That way, um, even if it's on waivers of offsets and things like that, release those claims, get those good waivers. That way, if the lender regrettably has to move forward uh, with some sort of litigation or an adverse action, which hopefully is avoidable, but if they can't avoid that, at least they can minimize the matters at issue between them and the borrower. And that way, the lender and borrower can truly focus on the matters at issue. And two, uh, think about bankruptcy. If if there's a if there's an opportunity for bankruptcy there, I do try to have some of the elements for a lift stay in there, and I have some of the elements for suitability for reorganization, and that they'll cooperate through the process and the opportunity to um, offset or recoup, and have that built in as well. So whatever you can permissibly do under those agreements, I like to have that buttoned up all at once. That way, you're focusing on let's focus on performance, let's focus on getting this loan back in in good stead. And if for some reason it isn't there, then at least we know what the next path looks like forward and we've already paved that way. And one last quick plug, the ability and the willingness, I'm going to focus on the willingness of the borrower to negotiate a plan or agree to those kinds of terms whenever it's appropriate can also be one of those subjective elements if you ever are able to look at and evaluate a non-accrual debt and reinstating it to a performing loan. So all of those things, that agreement helps us be telltale signs of those sorts of subjective elements and also helps us measure uh, reinstatable factors, which are pretty common amongst the industry. So that's kind of a long-winded way of once you've identified that distress and or have a non-accrual loan, look at some creative ways to restructure that with some measurable goals, with some good recitals at a time when we all agree we need to focus on getting this loan to a performing status. Let's get rid of the noise for the future in case it doesn't uh, fully resolve and we have to move forward in a different way. And that way it reduces the costs on everybody. So those are some opportunities that I've found to be helpful. I don't know if you have other things that you would want to kind of add in as we wrap this up. Uh, for this first podcast, but let me know, Elizabeth, have I missed something? Do you have some good tips that maybe you want to add in? Stephanie, as always, you've said some amazing things here in the last few minutes, and I, a couple of I things. Paid I paid you to I say that. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. kidding. Um, I guess just a couple of things. I'll reiterate and then just add a few more. Um, you know, I think it's just as attorneys or as regulatory people, as compliance people in general, I feel like our, you know, we can't stress enough the importance of documentation 
um, you know, people saying it's, it's the broken record, document, 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 but it is so true and it is so critical. Um, and I liked your analogy of the partial credit. You know, I like to tell everyone that's so important, not just in distressed, you know, loans, anything that the regulator or an auditor is going to look at. You know, the, the analysis is so key. So even if they disagree that, hey, we're going to give you partial credit because you followed a process or you went through the analysis and you documented what you were thinking, at least. Um, you know, again, typical to an attorney, I'm terrible at math. And if it wasn't for partial credit, I don't think I would have a college <laughs> degree. But you know, well, that will be another podcast, too. Um, getting creative was great. I mean, I think I can't stress that enough. You know, think a little bit outside the box of what, you know, the normal things you would do. And, you know, be, as you said, the lender does not want the collateral back. So anything you could kind of do differently or, you know, in, in a new way to try and make that be the goal is important. Um, I think it's also really good to set aside any kind of personal emotions. And I mean that on a positive or negative side. I think, you know, there tends to be people that we've you know, we worked with for 20, 30 years and we really like them. And so, you know, the, the idea is getting a little blinded by some of that and, and just as easily kind of getting irritated or annoyed by someone you feel is, you know, is angry or not, not cooperating in the way that you want them to. So just trying to take all that emotion out of it and just really kind of focus on what's the best way to get either, you know, back to viability if we can do that or to liquidation if that's what needs to happen. Always keeping in mind the you know, the best outcome for the stockholders of the association and the association in, in, in a whole. So, you know, not just, I don't want to work with this person because I, or, you know, they've been mean. So just think about like the big picture there well, um, and try to get it done early because, you know, as you say, once a lot of things, you know, especially if, if litigation starts or things become litigious, then it gets harder and harder to repair that. So just trying to get in there early and and, and keep that relationship going in a positive way. You just said something I think is really important. And um, we said a lot of things that were important, but going back to sort of that math concept and the emotion, in my experience, um, so my husband is, uh, he's from a, a dairy farming family in Wisconsin. Uh, he's grown up around farmers. Farmers are in my family. Um, and so agricultural finances is near and dear to us in a couple of different ways. And of course, from my lending experience, um, it is part of my practice and I get, I try to get both lenses. But with that in mind, taking out that emotion, my experience, the agricultural sector more so than many other sectors, there often is an identity that comes along with that borrower that comes along with their job, meaning farming is their life. And you have to know to a certain degree, you're dealing with someone who just to say, well, let's, you know, just wind up your operation. That's a, that's like getting rid of their identity. And that really right. can be very difficult. So something that you said that made me think about that is that when you're analyzing, let's say you do get an application to restructure or you do get a request to modify a loan. Let's say the, the loan isn't distressed, but it's deteriorating. Whatever you do, um, you know, do make sure the math stays in play. So on a restructure, for example, um, if you have a request that has been proposed to you or if you, the lender, has an opportunity that you would propose, make sure mathematically it is the best cost, the least cost to the um, to the lending group. And so the reason why I say that is, let's say you have two or three options. Let's say the borrower's proposed one and you've proposed one lender, you have a counter proposal. Do look at that least cost. One, it may be regulatorily required or it may be internally required with your particular lending group, but also do look at it because it lays it out. It takes that emotion out of it. It tells you 
do you have it right? You know, have you have you done something that makes the most sense under the circumstances presented to proceed forward? If the proposal in front of you is not the least cost, if there's alternatives and you've picked you've picked the most expensive, well, now you may be violating obviously your responsibilities and obligations to uh, collect the debt to the lending institution. It may be costing them more money than it's worth, but also on the borrower side, you're impu- kind of imposing more cost than necessary and made it more difficult for them to return that loan to performing status or to maintain a performing status. So really making sure we identify that distress early, keeping that hole uh, of distress as small as possible, staying away from that 90-day clock to the extent possible, making sure that whatever you do is truly the best solution, the least cost that you can propose under the circumstances are all critical. It gets back to the math. The math takes the emotion out of it. It helps demonstrate why and document why you are proceeding down the path you're proceeding down. And really, too, sometimes as a lender, you have so much experience, you know what's going to work. And let's say you have a spreadsheet and you've done your least cost analysis. And you're like, huh, this math just isn't coming out the way I anticipate. Generally, in my experience, it means we're missing a cost. We're forgetting about, you know, um, the cost to maintain during that period of time for liquidation, partial liquidation or forbearance. We're forgetting maybe the, uh, the additional cost to maintain that loan during that period of time. There's some expense or item that we're not fully accounting for or we haven't fully um, identified the current valuation in a dis- distress way, uh, like a net valuation for net, net realizable value or CRV or the AV. We're doing something off. So typically, if the math isn't lining up with your expectations, do make sure that you check your math and make sure all variables are included. But once you've done that, really, that math should kind of guide your way. A lot of people want to avoid that exercise because they deem it's unnecessary. Uh, not only maybe may it be regulatorily required or internally required, but it really is a very good litmus, even if it's not required, just to make sure you got it right because it really does matter. So I think Elizabeth, you that those are some really good points that you brought out about the emotion. I think the least cost helps minimize that, but do keep in mind who your borrower is, and do keep in mind how difficult it can be to kind of proceed through this path. That's why I do think early identification, early conversations. And then quick identification is the best thing to do under these circumstances. So, Great. Stephanie, I can't agree more. Um, I think we've covered so many important and interesting and complex topics here today. Is there anything else I guess we want to just kind of put in here before we wrap up or... No, I think for distressed debt identification, not accrual, these are some really good practical tips. But definitely, as we kind of move forward through these cycles, we will be analyzing in future podcasts some of the other aspects uh, for debt that we need to be analyzing as a lender moving forward. Correct. And you know, we want to thank everyone again for joining us in Advancing Agriculture, you know, where we're going to talk about legal insight for ag finance industry and connect people to what matters most today in our complex and highly regulated world. And like Stephanie said, there will be more to come and we hope you continue to join us in future episodes. Thank you again for joining us on Advancing Agriculture, Legal Insight for the Ag Finance Industry, where we connect you to what matters in the complex and highly regulated world of agricultural finance and the farm credit industry. We've been your hosts, Stephanie Kaiser and Elizabeth Benefield, and we hope you can join us next time in future episodes for more exciting and interesting topics.